Good morning, this is Nick Augustine here with Mark Scroggins at the Scroggins Law Group office in Frisco, and today we are talking about discovery. Yeah, that is something that uh, I don't think a lot of people talk about too much, and it's something that, uh, you know, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you're trying to discover information, but people really generally don't have any idea what it encompasses. All right. Well, what is discovery? What are the types? Sure. So. So discovery, like I said, is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. You are using that to discover information that is relevant to your loss, uh, to your lawsuit. Okay. So in the context of family law matters, that could be obviously financial information. It could be whether or not your spouse had, uh, if their mental health issues, if somebody had an affair, uh, a whole litany of different things. Now, and there are different types of discovery. Okay. There's written discovery and there's oral discovery. Oral discovery is you know, depositions, okay? Uh, so most people have seen those in, in the movies or on TV, they're not exactly like that, but a deposition would be like if I was representing you and we were taking your spouse's mm. uh, deposition, we'd be here, your spouse would be sitting here or down there, uh, court reporter, I always had a videotape, so videographer would be here as well, uh, and her lawyer would be here also. Depending on the issues in the case, I might even have an expert witness sitting there. So mm -hmm. let's say if the parties owned a business or multiple businesses, I might have a business valuation expert that is sitting there that is listening to the testimony that is going to be utilized in their process of business valuation. Okay, So that's oral discovery. The significance of that is that you can use a transcript uh, at a later date, and that transcript transcript can be used in different manners, and we'll talk about that a little later, depending on whose deposition it is, if that person is available at trial, um, so a number of different things. Mm -hmm. Then getting into written discovery, okay? You have written discovery documents, which are interrogatories, which is just a legal fancy term for written questions, okay? In what is called a level two case, you are limited to 25 interrogatories. Most cases are level two, so you have 25 interrogatories where you can ask a number of different questions. You know, uh, where have you been employed over the last 10 years, the course of your, let's say it's a 10 year marriage, the course of your marriage, what were you making, uh, who were your direct reports, that kind of thing, okay? You can also ask for credit, uh, you know, identify the different credit cards or uh, bank accounts that you have, things of that sort. You also have requests for production of documents, exactly what it sounds like. You're asking them to produce documents to you. So when I just talked about the identification of the different credit card accounts or financial accounts that you have or stuff with a pension or 401k, a request for production of documents is gonna ask for the production of the statements related to that, okay? Obviously, so let's say that I have been representing a spouse who has been a stay-at-home, okay? And a lot of the times in those scenarios, uh, that person also is not involved on the day-to-day -day investments, okay? Sure. Or uh, maybe they don't, maybe they do, maybe they're the ones who write all the checks and you know pay all the bills. A lot of the times they're not. If they're not, then you've got to do a lot of the heavy lifting to find out what the hell is there, where's it located, how do you get a hold of it, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So in these uh, document productions, you're gonna be requesting that, okay? And it can go a lot, you know, into a lot of different things. So let's say that there's a question of a paramour, okay, which just means the person you cheated with, all right? You're gonna ask 
Are there text messages? Are there uh, emails? Are there communications via social media? All of these, you know, have y'all been sexting? We want to get our hands on this. If not, you're going to also have questions in the interrogatories that are going to ask, have you destroyed anything? Right. Okay. Have you erased anything along those lines that have been requested? Okay. Because maybe yet then you need to bring in a computer forensics expert who can go in and try to recover uh, what has been erased. Okay. So interrogatories and production. You have requests for disclosures. Okay. Which is statutory on what can and cannot be asked for. And it asks for people with knowledge of relevant facts. It asks for your theory of the case on why do you think you can get what you're asking for, okay? The problem with this is it really, in my opinion, needs to be changed because basically what people do is they regurgitate what is in their petition or their counter petition, okay? It also forces you to list who your expert witnesses are. So the fact witnesses and expert witnesses that's the real meat of this, unless you've got personal injuries and things like that, which is possible, as we've discussed before, to have tort clients within the context of a divorce. So things happen in a certain order. So at one point, we're disclosing witnesses. So those witnesses are not known. Then depositions can be scheduled for those witnesses. Typically, I mean, every once in a while, I'm going to take a deposition early, and it depends on mm -hmm. what the particular facts are. But you're right. Typically... Um, typically, I'm going to want to go through written discovery first because that's going to give me information uh, that I'm going to rely on in, in the person that I'm deposing, okay? And typically, you only get one bite of the apple on a deposition. I don't get to take um, your deposition and then uh, turn around and go, oh, you know what? I forgot about something, and then 45 days later, I want to take it again. Yeah. Right. right. So there are limited situations where you might get a second bite at the apple, but that is very, very unusual. Okay. So we talked about three, and then there's another one that is requests for admissions. Okay. Requests for admissions are not used as often um, by a lot of people. I tend to use them pretty frequently because they're, I think, very effective. They are statements. Admit or deny that blank. Okay. Here's the, here's the good and the bad about it. You can use admissions to really set up your case. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that you've got a lawyer that knows what the hell they're doing mm -hmm. in drafting these things because they have to be drafted very specifically. So if you've got a request for admission that says, admit or deny that you had an affair with Sarah, okay? Well, you know, that's not clear enough that I can admit or deny that. Who the hell are you talking about? Define Over affair. what period of time? Define affair. What does that mean? I'm just going to not answer that request for admission. Yeah, and you can't quite get by with that. But you can make an objection that there is no way for you to uh, properly answer that question based on the way that it is received, that it, it creates it creates the likelihood of a, uh, of a false answer. Is it true, Mark, that requests to admit that are not answered are deemed admitted? That is absolutely true. Which is why those objections are good, and you shouldn't just blow it off. That's exactly right. right. I mean, so all of these that we're talking about, you've got 30 days to respond to that. And when I say 30 days to respond, that is both to your answers mm -hmm. and your objections. Now, one of the problems that you run into is lawyers tend to be a little verbose, okay? And so they tend to object. Yeah, right? Uh, and so they tend to object more than they should. Um, and 
So they will go in and object, and a lot of the time they'll put in these prophylactic objections, and then they'll say subject to them without waiting the foregoing objections. In a deposition, and then the lawyer has said it 7,000 times, and we wonder, where is this hearing on the objections? Well, okay, that's not in the in depositions. That's in written discovery. Okay. okay? In a deposition, you are very limited to what your objections are. You mm -hmm. basically can say objection form, mm -hmm. or you can instru uh, instruct someone not to answer. It's not the way it used to be where you could lead someone uh, you know, down the primrose path. Like it used to be many years ago that I could say, "Well, I'm going to object because that question is vague, and uh, my client doesn't have personal, you know, personal knowledge of that." And of course, he has personal knowledge of yeah. that. He can go ahead and testify to that. See, so I'm I'm sitting there telegraphing. You know, do you know what you're talking about? Yeah. And either say something or don't. Right. Now you can't do that. Okay. If you do that, you can get penalized all sorts of different ways. It can be pecuniary. It can be a bunch of different ways too, okay? So that's something to consider in that. But with the written discovery, you've got 30 days to, to do that, but you also might need to come in and file what's called a motion to compel that says, hey, they haven't provided all the documents. They haven't answered properly. They haven't done this, they haven't done that. And you need to make sure that you are willing to do that. So there are a whole lot of different tools that are out there that can be used in in building your case and in, in understanding what the facts are. You know, if you've been, um, let's say that I've been representing someone that was a stay-at-home mom for 25 years, and her deal was to take care of the kids and the household, and dad brought home the bacon, so to speak, and paid all the bills, okay? Well, what tends to happen in those scenarios is the person who has been staying at home doesn't know what the hell there is. They've got a general idea, Hey, I think that it's a 401k, you know, with this company, and I think there was a 401k here that was rolled over into an IRA. But generally, they don't know a whole lot more than that. How much is in the savings account? How much is in the checking account? You know, might not know. Yeah. Okay. And you know, the the person who has been controlling that might have uh, cut off their access to things, so they don't necessarily know what's going on. Right. So you're kind of you know working in the dark. That's why these things are so important. Absolutely. Mark, how are the discovery documents and discovery materials we've just talked about used in your case at hearings and at your final trial if you have one? Okay, so um, differently, <laughs> typically. Um, so just because you received documents does not necessarily mean that they are in admissible form, okay? Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of different objections. One of the other uh, pieces that you can use in discovery that I didn't mention are subpoenas, okay? So let's say that um, little Johnny's in junior high at one of the one of the junior highs in Plano, okay? And there have been behavioral issues. And let's say that uh, he's in some special ed classes, so there have been art meetings and things of that sort, okay? I want to get those documents so that they can be utilized in trial, right? So I'm going to request them directly from the source, and that is the custodian of records for Plano Independent School District, and maybe specifically for that school, okay? I get those back, I have them sign and do what is called a business records affidavit, okay? Then I take that and those are then filed with the court. Mm -hmm. They have to be on file at least 14 days prior to trial. That gets them to the point of saying that, hey, 
these documents are what they purport to be. Right. Okay. But that in and of itself does not make them admissible. Okay. You can have hearsay problems. Okay. Hearsay is an out-of-court statement where the other word the declarant, the person writing it, okay, is not available. That's kind of dumbed down a little bit, but that's just in, in general, okay? So if you're getting notes from an art meeting, those notes might be what they are, but you're not around the hearsay in that, okay? You might also do that with medical records, same problem. Where this can be a little different, it's let's say that I am trying to prove up an affair, okay? And so I go and I get stuff from AT&T, and I'm showing all these different phone calls and all these text messages from one party to another party. Now, doing the same thing with the business record there, okay? With it being computer generated, the movement has been it used to be that that was still looked at as hearsay, okay? The movement has now been to look at, well, that's computer generated, and so it is not actually a declarant, okay? It's not a person that is making a statement. It is a business record that is computer generated and falls outside of those hearsay, hearsay objections. Right, because you can't cross-examine a computer. Right, well, and there are different, you know, you could get you could get the person up there that is in that is there to run it. So there are different schools of thought on that. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I like it uh, a lot of time because it makes it easier to get some of these things in. And sometimes you have to. There are also different ways to get things in, like a uh, uh, a family business records exception and a number of different ways that, that you can utilize these things. So anyway, that is a that is one way that that you're going to. Things. Now, you're going to use these things also to prove up your case. So let's say that there is a, a closely owned, uh, closely held business, okay? Uh, someone has 15 Burger King franchises, okay? And they call it, you know, uh, it's uh, Whopper LLC. Yes. Okay? Well, yes. you need to figure out what the hell Whopper LLC is valued at, right. okay? And so you're gonna use all of that information through a business valuation expert who's going to, you know, depending on if they're a CPA or if they're a finance person, different, different uh, methodologies can be utilized in creating uh, that valuation, okay? And so you're gonna look at that. That's one way that they can be used. You can also use some of it, uh, some of it in a hearing when it is produced to you and you notify the other side that, hey, there's our intention that we are gonna use these documents that you produced to us at trial. That gets over the authentication issue. It still doesn't get past the other uh, admissibility issues. So it's two-tiered, folks. That's real important to understand and make sure that you've got a lawyer that you know, is a trial lawyer so they understand the rules of evidence, they understand the rules of civil procedure so that uh, they know how to get these documents in. Because I tell you what, when you can't get stuff in, or you don't know that you cannot get stuff in, um, it's it's a problem. Because yeah. sometimes you're going to get some documents, and you're going to get some evidence that there's just no way in hell you're getting it in. Yeah. You just can't, right. okay? So what do you have to do? Well, you have to have somebody who's going to come in and testify about it, okay? And so it's important to know that. You know, I have seen people go in. Uh, here's, here's a good example. I'll get someone who's out of state that says, well, I'll write an affidavit for 
well, that doesn't do me any good. Okay, mm. I can't present an affidavit and go, "Hey, Judge, here." Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it it doesn't do anything. Right. So it's real important to know. So if you've got a situation like that, what do you need to do? Well, will the court allow someone to testify telephonically or by Skype? Right. Uh, or do we have to have them here in person? Different court, different rules. Okay. Different rules between one court in Collin County and another. Different rules between one court in Collin and one court in Dallas or Denton or Tarrant or yeah. Wise or Monte or any of these, okay? Different rules. Make sure you know what the hell you're doing, okay? So there's a lot of stuff there, but to boil it all down, how are you going to use all this stuff? You're going to use that as the backbone of your case in figuring out what the story is that is being told related to all the different issues in your case, mm -hmm. okay? And then you are going through and cherry picking what documents do you need to put in front of the trier of fact? Is that a judge or is that a jury, okay? You tend to get a little bit more leeway going to a judge than you do to a jury, okay? But those things have to be presented, mm -hmm. okay? So that's how all of this is used. So it is incredibly, incredibly important and the number of lawyers that kind of are lukewarm on what the rules are and how do I how do I do that is is amazing to me. So when you're interviewing someone, ask them how is this? What are we going to need? How do we get that in? Do you know how to do that? Do you go to trial often? How long have you been doing this? These are things that are important for you to know. Okay, because. You always, always hope for the best, mm -hmm. but you have to prepare for the worst. If you don't, if you don't, you are selling yourself short and the rules have changed. It is now about you and your kids and y'all's future, okay? So choose wisely. Make decisions on what needs to be done in your case and make sure you've got the right. This is why board certification is so important Huge. as well, because in order to even sit for the board certification exam, you have to have so many trials under your belt. Well, that's right. That's right. And it's trials and hearings and mediations and appeals and years of practice right. and percentage of practice. I mean, so, you know, that's a great starting place. I mean, you know, in board certification in family law in Texas, 2%, 2% of lawyers, something like that. So it's it's small. Or two percent of lawyers are board certified in family law. I should say. Sure. Right. So you know that's a great starting point. And you know here we've got four lawyers. Two of us are board certified in family law. The other two will be within the next two years as we add people. That's huge. That's something that we will continue to do because that is the level of expertise that is really important for us to provide to our clients. Absolutely. Mark, we talked about the different types of discovery. In part two, we talked about how it's used in final hearings and trials, and let's talk about now, what's the role of the client? So obviously the client uh, plays a huge role in, in all of these things. You know, so when you are answering interrogatories, the other lawyer isn't asking me questions. They're asking the client questions. Mm -hmm. So it's the client who provides the information for the answer, okay? Now you're gonna sit down with the client, or when I say you, we sit down with our clients and go through this. You know, basically they write, kind of write stuff out, and then we're gonna sit there and talk to them about 
uh, about their answers and you know help to get it in a you know, proper proper format. Okay, production of documents. They're the ones who are primarily responsible for going and gathering all of that. Requests for admissions. They're the ones who have to answer. You know, is this true or not? You know, got to do that. Depositions. They're the ones providing all the information. So this allows a little bit of a segue. One of the things that I will always tell clients is you only get one shot at credibility, okay? Do not, do not go into court and lie. Do not go into a deposition and lie. Now, having said that, people do that all the time, all the time. And sometimes you can catch them with it and you can shoot their credibility you know, right to hell on stuff, and that's great, and that is beneficial for you. The biggest problem that I have with some of this is unfortunately, I find that judges are not willing to really hold folks' feet to the fire when they've been caught lying, and I wish they would. Why is that? I don't have a good answer for you, you know? Um, the judges push it off to the DA's office and saying that the DA doesn't want to prosecute it because they're so We've heard that a few times. Uh, and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand that to some degree. I still think that's a chicken shit answer because it takes, you need to make that referral. You know, the judge needs to make that referral. And I wish they would do that because um, that is one of the, that is one of the biggest disappointments. You know, you go in there and you hear someone lie prove that they lie and the court won't do anything with it. What about asking for sanctions? You could definitely go in and ask for sanctions. Um, you know, so here, that is absolutely a remedy that you have, okay? Uh, and it's a remedy that can be utilized. The problem is that typically it's at the very end of the case mm -hmm. and by that time everything is, is done and going back and seeking a, uh, a sanctions motion Everybody is just done. The client right. has spent, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on expensive litigation and uh, are like, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I'm just done, you know? And uh, so it, it depends on kind of where this happened right. in the case. And, uh, but that is a viable, a viable option. You just, you have to be very careful the way you play your cards. Sometimes it is worth it. Sometimes it's not, you know, because you also have to take into consideration what county you're in, what what judge you're before, uh, how busy they are, and how are you going to appear in presenting that? Do you have a technical violation of something, or is this something that has really had a negative impact on a party or children, you know, to the case? And so that's just something that's really important to to lay that thing out, okay? When we're talking about the role of the client and everything with divorce and custody, is this also applying on modification cases? Absolutely, I mean, so, you know, discovery is something that is available in every case, in every case. Enforcements as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, so, you know, it's, it's something to think about. Sometimes you really need it, sometimes you don't, okay? Mm -hmm. Vast majority of the time you need it. 
um, especially anti-divorce. Okay, once you start getting into modifications and enforcements and different things, you know, uh, that might not be necessary depending on what the facts are. You know, are you talking about either enforcement or are you talking about something that is clear-cut for violations or are you talking about something that is, you know, has been going on for 18 months? Right. So... What do you say to when a client is talking about their role, and as you said, you give them the questions, here's your interrogatories, get your answers, here's your production request, find your documents, right. and they say, Mark, I don't remember, I think there's accounts here, I think there's accounts here, and it's they want to produce the most com- comprehensive responses for you, but they just don't know where everything is, and at what point do you cut off but at what point do you stop sending subpoenas I mean where we talk about sometimes it's a fishing expedition or it's not or someone just doesn't know and they just are it seems like a very stressful thing for someone to need to go and try to figure all this out and it just seems like you can be up against the wall sometimes you can Um, I don't have a lot of sympathy with people that say you know hey I don't I don't know what other accounts that I have unless you're the one trying to discover that Right. If someone's sitting there saying, oh, I don't remember that I had this account, I don't, you know what, I'm just not buying that a lot of the time. I know what where I have accounts, okay? Um, now, if you've got an old account that you forgot that you never closed that's got a zero balance in it or 15 bucks, okay, I'll give you, you know, but, but someone that, uh, oh, I didn't remember I had this or I didn't remember I had that, here's an easy way to figure it out. Get a credit check. Okay, it's going to show all the different accounts that you've got. Plain dumb doesn't work. No, so that's the you know that's that's one way to do that. And the other thing, it's easy to get overwhelmed with that. Mm-hmm. And it's what I'll tell people all the time. You know how do you how do you eat the elephant right? One bite at a time. <laughs> Make a list. I like that. Yeah. So I mean, the great thing is in the digital age, most of this stuff is pretty easy. I mean, you can depending on what bank you're at. excuse me, typically, you've got anywhere from a year to two years of stuff that is online right now that you can go in and download PDFs and turn around and send that to your lawyer, Mm -hmm. okay? That's easy. The other thing is all of these financial students, financial students, financial institutions, they are statutorily required to maintain information on accounts for a significant amount of time. I can't remember now if it's seven or 10 years, but anyway, you can go, uh, you can go back and they've got all of it recorded. Now it might be kind of, you know, a pain in the ass factor. They might have to go pull it off a microfish or something like that. Microfish. Yeah. So, I love that. so but they've got it. Yeah. But they've got it. It's and there you can somewhere. Get it. And that's the point. Right. Okay. So the ones that are the most difficult tend to be like the, the phone companies, you know, getting a hold of stuff or the social media companies, um, those are difficult. Now, here's something else that we should talk about when it comes to discovery that is really important. HIPAA. Yeah, I was just gonna say. HIPAA is great in a lot of ways because we all needed you know, some protection on stuff and mm-hmm. don't need that floating out in the ether sphere. Uh, but it is a huge pain in the ass uh, in, in uh, some other ways. I mean, it has created some problems uh, and created some ability for people to hide behind things that they have no business hiding behind. Um, but they have to 
now, because if they don't, they've got a violation of HIPAA and the penalties associated with that are stiff. So, um, you know, something as simple as a drug test, okay? Do you need a HIPAA release for that? I would sure have one. You know, I'm not turning stuff over unless I've got HIPAA releases on that because I don't want violations of that. You know, and you, you know, some people are highly, highly litigious. So, you know, they might tell you, oh, it's fine, go ahead. No, 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 no. You're going to sign this. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for me to turn The best out. trust is to put yourself in the position not to have to trust. That's exactly right. Yes. So, all very, um, all very doable stuff, but important to know what you're doing. Absolutely. Find a good board certified lawyer who knows about how to avoid the traps because the traps may come along. And while most of the people you work with are above board, you just never know who's going to come in and throw a wrench in the, in the gears. That's exactly right. Right. Call Scargan's Law Group. And we want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast or watching our video. And do encourage you to follow up and call Mark here in the Frisco office. There's offices here in Frisco. You can meet in Dallas. And, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, our new, Dallas, our new Dallas office is getting ready to open next week. Very excited. Which is at 4849 Greenville. It's an energy plaza. So right there at Lovers and 75, right across from SMU and uh, Park City from, in Highland Park and Lakewood's on the other side. So uh, really good to service our uh, Park City's Preston Hollow and East Dallas clients. All right. Excellent. Thank you all, and uh, be good to each other, and look forward to hearing from you. All right. Bye-bye now.